Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect anything different. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. I am Chris Solomon, and I'm joined for the first time on the podcast from the PGA Tour. You heard him before on PGA Tour Live at play-by-play announcer. You hear him on Talk of the Tour on the on PGA Tour Radio as well, Mr. John Swantek. John. You realize you're putting your career at risk again coming on this podcast. You've had me on your show before, but are you willing to do this again? Uh, I am. I'm just wondering how far down the list of potential guests you had to go through before you got to Swantech. <laughs> I'm going in alphabetical order, so I mean, it, uh, it it did take me a while. This is episode, I think, number 25, so it's... Uh, yeah, we're 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 deep in, we're deep in the roster to pull you in here. No, we're thrilled to have thrilled to have you. I'm hesitant to have people from the PGA Tour because of how critical I can be at times. So I will keep it between the lines to make sure that uh, anyone listening from the PGA Tour end will make sure that we don't get Mr. Swantech in trouble. But uh, <laughs> it's all it's all good, and you're you're critical only when uh, when it's advised and necessary. I think you're I think you're fair about it for the most part. For the most part, yeah, I'm sure that uh, look, I, I I'm uh, I'm critical of a lot of things. So when people are critical of me, I'm I'm fine to take it. I'll listen to fair criticism of myself. So, and feel free to shoot me down on anything that I've been critical on the PGA Tour on, and uh, I, I can take it. Trust me, I'm. I'm I'm tough, right. but when I but when I start crying, if you hear me crying, I'm cutting out <laughs> I'm cutting out the recording just to warn you. All right, but sounds good. If you don't mind, uh, for those that don't know your background, and to be honest, I don't know a whole lot about your background. How did you end up where you are with the PGA Tour? What was your path like, and uh, what's it like to be a PGA Tour announcer? Well, I've been here, man. It's hard to believe I've been here almost 20 years, Chris. Jeez. I didn't think it would be this long. It was, you know, the five-year plan that everybody has in mind when they take a new job. Um, I came down from upstate New York. I grew up in Saratoga Springs in the in the foothills of the Adirondack Mountains. There, uh, worked a lot in local news and sports in the Albany market as a producer, a reporter. Did some anchoring as well, and. I just did sort of a nationwide search. I just cast a wide net looking for, you know, a major sports organization to work for. This job with the tour opened up. Uh, I started as an associate producer, was a writer for many years, did some stuff in the field, did some long form production as well. And, you know, gradually it it, uh, began to evolve a little bit, did some voiceover work and got a couple opportunities here and there. And. I've sort of been in the right place at the right time. Honestly, I've been I've been really fortunate with the the explosion and the expansion of all our live digital stuff over the last several years. So uh, the timing worked out pretty well, and it's been it's been a lot of fun, man. It's been a great ride. Well, we, uh, me, and some of the other no laying up guys, we have a uh, sort of a nickname, I guess, for you. Is we we always say that you were you were the consummate professional. So I don't know if, how familiar you are with baseball, but we we always had an inside joke that any time. Rich Aurelia would come to bat. Announcers always had to say he's such a professional hitter. So we, our nickname, our little inside joke nickname for you is Rich Aurelia. Just so, just full disclosure, so you know that. I, I love it, and I'm a big baseball fan, and I can think of no higher praise than being uh, analogous with Rich Aurelia. Let me tell you, Jerry Royster, maybe. I can play every position you need as well. 
<laughs> well, so am I right in saying that your main role now with the tour is doing the PGA Tour live at broadcasts? Yeah, that's a big uh, chunk of it. My my weeks are uh, you know pretty full with stuff. I do the PGA Tour radio show every every day at uh, at eleven o'clock. Um, Thursdays and Fridays, and you're probably familiar with this as a guy living in Amsterdam. I host our international feed, which goes to all of our broadcast clients outside of the United States, like 220 countries and territories. So uh, I host that every Thursday and Friday, and then when there's a conflict with our with our digital stuff, I usually slide over and do that. And that's going to get much busier next year now as well with this the advent of PGA Tour Live. So we're going to be handling 32 events every Thursday and Friday next year. So we're pretty fired up about that. Let me tell you, I do love, uh, I especially love the international broadcast because when I watch the TV here, it's usually in Dutch. And then it, when it goes to commercial, it switches over to the international broadcast and then it's in English. So I take in everything I can during that during that 90 seconds or whatever you're on during the commercials. <laughs> and that's the only part in English that I hear. But you would think it would be helping with my Dutch, but it's really, really not. So You know what? It's uh, The international feed, I think, services a, a, a niche for sure, but it's a pretty hearty golf audience. I happen to find it fascinating. I mean, if I were outside of the U.S., I would uh, I would love it because you get the stories told of guys who are maybe not a factor in the tournament, maybe exactly. not a factor in the season-long points race. I mean, they might be just grinding to make a cut or grinding to make their card uh, outside of the, you know, the upper stratosphere of the game, Chris, that most people see when they're watching network TV. Uh, this gives you the nitty-gritty and the, and the down and dirty. It's just pure golf. And if you're a golf fan, uh, it's. I think it's what you're looking for. That's exactly what I've been so complimentary of what you guys have done in the past on uh, do on your PGA Tour live at broadcast, and that you know television golf can be structured in certain ways. I mean, they're going to cater to the large audiences, and I understand that they're going to try to tell a story with a tournament, and you're going to show guys near the top, etc. But you know, the, you know that the diehards are turning tuning in to watch you guys online on Thursday and Fridays, and tuning in to watch feature groups on the weekends, and so. The diehards don't need to have everything placed on a platter for you. So I feel like the way you guys approach your job in online broadcasts is you treat the listener or the viewer almost with more respect than you know a a, uh, a network announcer does, and that they know it's it, you, they they know it's not a casual fan watching. So you don't need to feed us the same storylines that we hear about the same guys over and over again. And you guys call the golf and display the golf like it is an actual tournament because from my experience going to tournaments and just just going to a tournament a couple times a year can really open your eyes as to what an event is actually like and that it's not what it's it's not how the Sunday broadcast makes it seem it's 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 there's a lot of golf going on everywhere there's a lot of guys grinding to make the cut grinding to finish top 25 and and you just don't realize how difficult it really is when you only, you know, are plopping into guys' rounds and seeing, you know, seeing his approach on 16 on tape delay, et cetera. But, like, when you follow one group around for an entire day, you get just a much better idea of what it's like to be a PGA Tour player and realize that these guys hit a lot of bad shots, right? Yeah, no question about it. I mean, what we're learning with this PGA Tour Live a digital property is that – um, these players, although they're the best in the world, are often not at their best. And to me, that's just as compelling when they go out and shoot 63. So there's a comfort level for us as, as a broadcast team to kind of know what our role is and know who's listening and know who's watching. And, of course, we want to attract 
new viewers and we want to generate new fans and, and, and an interest in the game. Um, but this is a sport that has a very strong and devoted following and they're smart. I mean, they know this game. So you got to be on top of what you're doing. You know, you can't feed them any, any BS, certainly. Uh, you know, if you want to deliver the broadcast with a smile on your face, that's cool. But it certainly doesn't have to be gimmicky because, um, you know, it's a golf audience primarily that you're catering to. We feel that way anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, would, would you say, and forgive me because being in the Netherlands, I don't get the new PGA Tour live yet. My understanding is that I don't have access to it, at least the first time I tried. But um, And when I would watch you guys on the PGA Tour live ads before the, before the paid streaming, um, you know, network, you would have either you'd be calling either the action on one hole, one or two holes for the day, or following one group around for an entire day. What's easier, or what's more difficult? Oh, that's a good question. They're they're equally challenging, e- equally interesting. I think it's probably a little more lively to follow a group around because you, you simply you get to see the entire course and you see the the ebb and flow of a player's round. <laughs> you, you might see him turn seventy two into sixty nine, or you might see him turn. <laughs> 68 into into 74 so uh that's the privilege we have with pga tour live now because we've got two groups concurrently so really we're tracking six players for you simultaneously over the course of of the round uh and that happens within this premium window but then at three o'clock when golf channel comes on the air that's the end of the feature group coverage and we cover holes the rest of the day so uh it's a little bit of both if i had to choose one you know, I like to see all different players in the field coming through a couple of holes, but I would prefer to track just, uh, you know, three or six guys for the course of an entire round. Hmm. That's interesting. That surprised me, that answer, because I would have thought it would have been easier to discuss a certain hole over time and, <clears throat> and seeing how the different guys played it and to be able to discuss different players rather than to have to, you know, come up with four, four and a half hours worth of things to talk about Sergio Garcia on without repeating <laughs> things or without, you know, you know, I keep coming up with new things to to talk about his game, his background, and whatnot. I would I would think that would be a challenge to talk about the same person for that long. Yeah, you know what though, it's um, it's a different audience. It it turns over fairly often during the course of a six hour day. It's it's easy for us to kind of fall into a trap of thinking that everybody turns it on at eight in the morning and turns it off at three o'clock. Right. But, you know, if we're being honest with ourselves, that's just not the case. It turns over pretty frequently. Yeah, you got people hanging out at work on Thursdays and Fridays who are watching it. They might dip in, they might dip out. They're going to have an ear to it, if not an eye to it. So uh, it's okay to you know sort of repeat yourself. It's all right to, to fire up some highlights every hour or so. And you can always fall back on the fact, Chris, that it's a visual sport. I right. mean, you don't always have to fill the airtime with words. It's a beautiful sport to just watch and enjoy. And I think you guys also do a great job of this in that – you know when the when the players and caddies are discussing, there is nothing a commentator can add to make that any more interesting. They're just all you got to do. It's the easiest part of your job is just to stay silent. Amen. I mean, I'm in total agreement with that. I mean, to me, it's like being in the huddle during a basketball timeout or being on the mound when a manager comes out to make a pitching change and the the third baseman and the first baseman. Everybody creeps onto the mound for a discussion. I mean. That's as good as it gets. You can't script that. You can't write that. You can't manufacture that. I mean, for golf fans who are watching that and who really understand and appreciate the game, seeing these guys talk about shots and where to miss, and, I mean, we're talking a yard or a half yard here and there. That's how precise they have to be, but that's why they're as good as they are. And that's what I love seeing is, you know, we're talking, especially someone like Jordan Spieth, number one player in the world. I mean, you think about – 
in the grand, like in the literal sense of the word, he is the best at this game on the entire planet, right? No one is better than him. So really, in, in my mind, like who knows the game better than he does? And the answer to that is no one. But how much faith they'll put into their caddy and their input. And they won't he won't hit a shot without the proper input from Michael Greller. Like that just fascinates me. It's like it, it, it just shows how people underrate the role of a caddy. But I feel like if you really have somebody that you can rely on, I think that it's almost like he needs that reassurance before he goes in and commits to a shot. Well, that's the word. He needs it. Some guys need it more than than other players, um, you know, and they're. They're an interesting pair, those two, because Greller is so calm and composed and reserved and kind of a minimalist is the vibe that I get off of him. And Jordan is just out there, like Lee Trevino. He's just a bundle of energy, and he kind of has to he has to talk his way through everything. And that's just kind of the way he – that's sort of his coping mechanism, I guess, to deal with all the stress. And clearly he knows what he's doing. But, yeah, there's a real value in – the, a partnership between player and caddy these days. And I don't think anyone exemplifies it better than those two, except maybe uh, Jason Day and Carl Swatton. That's a very different relationship, but equally as effective, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I'd imagine, you know, be, you being a fan of the game of golf for, you know, as long as you've been involved in it, that you have your favorite players, least favorite players. How hard is it at times to stay neutral in your role? You have to stay neutral. There's no cheering in the press box, but like, how do you find yourself fist bumping under a table? Like, if Jordan Spieth or someone is making a birdie, or are there guys that you internally root for, but you know you have to reflect? I'm not asking you to name names. We're keeping it between in the fairway here. But uh, are, is it? Do you kind of lose a sense after doing it as long as you have of the the you know developing a fanhood for specific players, or is that something that still exists within you? Oh, man, I, I would be lying to you, Chris, if right. I told you we didn't root, if not for players overtly, then certainly for stories. Sure. Um, so we try to keep it as, as objective as we can in, in the presentation of, of what we're doing. But, you know, let's be honest, if the stories are more compelling, then it's going to be more interesting for the viewer, for the listener. So, you know, look no further than what happened in Greensboro last week. Right. I mean, Tiger Woods in serious contention and win a PGA Tour event was just cool. That was a great story. All of us were swept up in that to see the big cat out there on the prowl. It had been a while. I mean, it had certainly been a while. And had he hung in there and won, I think it would have been maybe the story of the year, maybe even more of an incredible achievement than, than what Speed did, honestly, because of you know, how far away he seemed to be from contending just a few short months ago. So, yeah, absolutely we root for stories. We have to. Yeah, I mean, I think um, regarding the big cat, I, I thought there's there would be something in between what we just saw last week and what we had previously seen from him. I did not expect that leap. I mean, let's face it, if he doesn't, you know, skull that chip, whatever he did on that chip on, I think, 12 or 13 and made triple bogey, he, I mean, I know it's an, it's not an, an uh, you know, an either or thing, but he made four birdies. What coming in after that, like, and he, if he doesn't make triple there, he finishes one out of the lead. <laughs> Davis Love the third. And I know every, if you if you reversed out every player's worst hole of a tournament, it would look a lot different. But I mean, yeah. I I don't want to say he's back because the course I think benefited him. It was a pretty simple course from his standpoint, and that it didn't challenge him too much off the tee, but. I mean, he's kind of back, right? <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was, you know, to use a tigerism, it, it was part of the process. <laughs> he, would, he would stand there after shooting 85 and say, look, you know, th- this is all part of the process. This is the next step. And all the, 
you know, all the, the Tiger naysayers and and, uh, and whatnot would say, you know, here, here we go again. We've heard this story before. We've seen this movie before. But, you know, these guys know. No one knows more than the player himself how close he is to being competitive. And for Tiger, this was just sort of the next step. You know, hit a few good shots together. Okay, great. Check the box. Put a day or two together. Great. Check the box. String a couple of rounds together. Put yourself on the fringe of contention. Yeah, we're good. He did that at Quicken Loans a few a few weeks ago. The next step was to put four rounds together, and this was as, as damn close as he could uh, be to accomplishing that uh, this year. And he didn't embarrass himself by any means. It was a 70. It was a level par round on Sunday. But, you know, it was the next step, and I'm with you. I'm, I'm convinced now that he's going to win in 2016. If you'd, if you'd asked me that two months ago, I'm not sure what I, what I would have said. I, I agree, and I, what is actually exciting me the most is him showing this willingness to and realization. You know, we, I've been clamoring for this for a while. I clamored for this back in 2011, way before No Laying Up ever existed. But he's above no event at this point. He really is not. I mean, and I, there, he's not above the John Deere Classic. And the fact that he sacked up and went and played the Wyndham this week impressed me. It did. And I think that kind of that, that fresh mentality and approach, and it wasn't like – it wasn't a course he felt like he should win on. You know, when he goes to Bridgestone, or and he, I know he didn't qualify for that this year, or when he goes to the Memorial, places he's won at f- four or five times, like, I think he kind of feels a pressure, like, I should perform here. This was a, a fresh slate. He had no bad memories of this golf course, no good memories, and just kind of freewheeled it. I don't think he really cared that much about qualifying for the playoffs as much as he did. Just kind of wanted to try something different. Yeah, and it's funny when you get to a certain point in your life and your career as an athlete and you begin to sense your own mortality. And let's face it, Tiger has been through a lot, you know, on and off the golf course to sort of, you know, erode this air of invincibility that he had for so long. But I think there's a there's a layer of humility there that we probably haven't seen in some time. And to your point about him not being above any tournament, I think that's great. You know, when yeah. he talked about the fan support at Greensboro, Chris, he was genuinely would light up about it when he was asked about it. I think it meant a lot to him to sort of be, you know, swept along as he was over the last four days. It had been a while for him, too. Not just all of us that were watching and and admiring, you know, the glimpses of greatness that we saw for so many years. But I think for Tiger personally, it was really good to be uh, in the hunt. So I'd like to see him sprinkle in a few more. I know he's going to play the Fries in October, and he might play a team event with Kuchar down in Mexico. Um, Riviera, I think, would be awesome. Wouldn't you love oh, to see him there? Oh, God, that'd be, that would be that'd – be, yeah, I, don't, I can't picture that happening. But, again, I couldn't have pictured the Wyndham happening. So, I mean, for, yeah. for once, I feel like I – mean, I've kind of mocked how much Tiger attention he's gotten all year long and how it's still, still become a story. But for once, I'm giving the full thumbs up, two thumbs up, Phil Mickelson – Go ahead for people to talk about Tiger right now. I think this is a very worthy story. Just, I think what we saw this past weekend was significant, and I mean, it gives me enough hope that I mean, I no one thinks he's going to go back to being tig- actual Tiger, but I think we're going to see a lot more glimpses of this. You know, when the when the conditions are correct, when the course setup is correct, I can't picture him. You know, going out to Aaron Hills next year when it's going to be close to 8,000 yards and bombing it out there and competing at the U.S. Open. But some of these courses, like something like Sawgrass or somewhere where he can, the driver gets neutralized a little bit and he can play from the fairway and rely on a strong iron game, I can see him contending. I can see him getting top tens and I can see him winning an event, no doubt. Yeah, and the disparity between the numbers, you know, his scoring average in regular tour events versus the major championships was, was startling this year because this was a guy who was just invincible 
uh, in major championships. So he's got to get that sorted out uh, the next time he's able to put himself in contention to win a major. But, yeah, I mean, maybe this is the new reality uh, for Tiger Woods. These are the events that he plays, and these are the events that he contends in as he continues to sort of grind his way back. And, you know, he's, he's not going to be the player he was, and we need to stop comparing him to the player he was 15 years ago because no one will ever be that guy, uh, and, and certainly not this current version of Woods. No. So, I mean, for someone who's been in the business as long as you have, you've seen, you've seen the, the full Tiger era like with the PGA Tour. Where do you rank, I guess, the state of today's game as far as your excitement for it? Like at peak Tiger time, was it more interesting to you than it currently is now with what we have Spieth, Day, McElroy as sort of the kind of the big three, which was the next point I wanted to discuss with you. But, I mean, how, where does this rate as far as the, the excitement level that you have to talk golf every day? Well, the height of Tiger Mania was just absurd. I mean, it was just stupid. I mean, we had never seen anything like it uh, in the game. I mean, I don't think we were fully prepared for it. Uh, we knew the type of potential he had, but I don't think we ever envisioned the 12-shot victory at the Masters or 17 victories over the course of the 99-2000 season. It was a phenomenon. I mean, he was a meteor. There was nothing like it. Now, I, I dare say the depth of the game now is better. I think the game is more interesting, certainly from, from our point of view, as presenters of the product, uh, than it was you know, 15 years ago because he, Tiger was so dominant and there was such a, such a gap between he and everybody else. I think the quality of, of competition now, the quality of play, the competitors is is really good. Uh, we always knew we were going to run into the post-Tiger era, Chris. We weren't sure how we were going to deal with it. Uh, once Tiger began to slow down, as every player does, um, and it was sort of fast-tracked a little bit, obviously, by what happened you know, in his personal world a few years ago. But now with the emergence of these other guys and perhaps a resurgence from Tiger, I think the convergence of all this at once uh, is going to make it as good as it's ever been. Yeah, no, I said the same thing to your colleague Mark Immelman the other day on his radio show and that I know we've never been better prepared to handle the post-Tiger apocalypse. Now, if we're going to mix in but potentially healthy and somewhat revived Tiger, it just adds this whole new element to the game. I mean, think back to the Masters. I feel like people have kind of even forgotten what Tiger did at the Masters this year. I mean, he was in the third-to-last group. No, he wasn't in contention to win the thing. I mean, Spieth had it pretty much wrapped up on Friday. But, I mean, he sh- there was four or five guys ahead of him going in after three rounds at, at the Masters, right? I mean, I know he's he can scrape it around that course regardless of his health or state of his game. But, I mean, it's not – obviously the rest of his year has been pretty much a disaster. But I still that still performance has stu- stuck out to me as far as – because I declared he was back after that. I've been kind of hoping no one reminded me of, of that, that tweet I sent back in April where I declared, I think in capital letters, that he's back. But um, I could, now, I'm not, now I'm not quite as embarrassed by that tweet. But, um, yeah. but back to – Go ahead. It's so impressive about the Masters, to your point, Chris. It was a tie for 17th. Okay. You know, no one's going to be bowled over by that. But think about where he was in the weeks leading up to that. Think about how how abysmal his short game was out in uh, Scottsdale and earlier this season. And there was grave concern over how he was going to deal with those issues at Augusta National of all places. Are you kidding me? And I thought he pitched the ball and chipped the ball beautifully that week. And that began to signal that okay, we need to be reminded how mentally tough this guy is. Yeah, I mean, the, you think back, it seems like a long time ago, but 
this was, I, this was a healthy Tiger Woods that we were debating whether or not he was going to play in the Masters out of fear of yeah. embarrassing himself. So to have it come this far and, you know, just even though it is just a blip on the radar and one good event to end the season, I mean, it's got me legitimately excited for him to tee it up at the Fries in seven weeks, which I couldn't have said before the, before this week. I mean, I literally said to Kyle Porter last week, I said, he wanted to talk about Tiger on the podcast, and I was like, I'm tapped out, man. I got nothing. I got nothing. And then he goes and fires two low rounds, and I'm running around like a madman. So <laughs> it's uh, it's definitely a good state of the game. But um, what I wanted to ask you next is a, a topic I discussed with Porter, but I, li- I like crowdsourcing this idea as well about the this this – you know, I, I typically make fun of these things that come up, you know, this overreaction to someone winning an event, but, you know, it was floated about Jason Day and Rory McIlroy and Jordan Spieth being this big three, you know, as soon as Day won his first major. And I told Porter the, sa- the same thing. I said, I kind of rolled my eyes at the beginning. The more I looked into it, I kind of buy it. I mean, obviously, Spieth and, and McIlroy have the stronger resumes to date, but I don't see any reason why Day can't be a strong number three to those two. Do you? No, I don't, and I, I love the idea of these three uh, forming some sort of rivalry because they're all uh, they're all different. They come from different corners of the world, from Britain and from Australia and from the United States. And you know, it, as much as we yearned and hoped for a Tiger Phil rivalry over the last you know decade, decade and a half, the fact of the matter is they never really battled head to head that I can recall late on Sunday of a major championship and that's a that's a big part of the equation in any kind of rivalry is to see these guys actually high up on the leaderboard in a in a meaningful event we've already seen that with day and speed twice in the last five weeks yeah. for crying out. <laughs> and don't think that rory hasn't taken notice of this i think while he sat on the sidelines uh and you know watched and listened to all the praise rightfully so that was being heaped on these guys uh let's not forget he's a pretty proud athlete and he's He's a great player. He's an explosive player. And his play at the PGA impressed me. I don't think we knew quite what to expect. But uh, I think Rory, you know, certainly gave us reason to believe that uh, he's healthy again. And once he tees it up, the Deutsche Bank, after he takes this week off, yeah, he's going to be a force. And I love the idea of the big three because they're all similar in age too, Chris. So this yeah. could be something we, we could have going for a while here. Yeah, and that's kind of the, what kind of surprised me, even though I, I feel like I know a lot about Jason Day. I just kind of – you tend to forget that he's just 27, right? Because we've seen him be so close for a better part of five years now. And you, you'd think that he's into his 30s. You'd think he's Justin, Dustin Johnson's age, but he's he's not. And the fact that you know he's been so close before and just hasn't gotten over the hump – I. I tend to I tend to think that's I, I definitely think that's a, a good thing rather than an indictment of him and uh, now that he's actually pushed over the hump I, I can easily there's not a major that his game doesn't fit I know he doesn't have a great track record at the open but I mean, he had a great he finished one shot out of the playoff at the open this year so I mean his major season obviously Spieth dominated the headlines for this major season but Day is a close second to have uh, I don't I forget what he did he finish second at the U.S. Open no he, he would have finished. Uh, yeah. Top five, but anyways, it, it was. Yeah. It's a pretty. Uh, that's a hell of a run to finish the finish the season on. Well, you know what? I mean, it felt like this major was coming for a long time. And to your point, he's only twenty seven. I mean, this is not like you know Mickelson in his early thirties, or even Ben Hogan in his early thirties before they broke through for their first majors. This is a young kid who's been close uh, so many times. And you know, I'm always reminded of uh, when he said he wanted to be the number one player in the world. This was several years ago and everyone said well, wait a minute wait a minute young fellow pump, pump the brakes a little <laughs> bit you, know, you haven't even won on the web.com tour yet but 
this was a guy with a tremendous amount of self-belief. Most of these guys have it. Uh, they don't all voice it, and I think that's the difference. But uh, this guy, Jason Day, I think is, is pretty special. Uh, I think he carries himself with, with real humility. I think he has put in an extraordinary amount of work. This doesn't happen with just raw talent alone. He's got that. He's got plenty of that. But there's a level of dedication that's you know, hard for the rest of us to, to recognize or define. Uh, only a special few have it. Uh, and those are the guys that are at the top of the rankings. Yeah, I just I, I just keep thinking back to the sound of some of those shots coming off his club face on Sunday. And, I mean, to win the way he did, to put on that big of a stripe show, shoot 20 under, I don't care how easy people saying whistling straights was. Look, I've played that course. It's not easy. I mean, the, the, the way, to win it that way so definitively where you basically play a, a error-free final round, I'm willing to forgive him for laying the sod over on that ball on number nine because he cut it up and down after that. But, I mean, that's just, that, that just shows that that's a different kind of talent level. This wasn't like, I mean, not to disparage Zach Johnson more than I already have, this wasn't ZJ grinding it out in a, in a playoff. Like this, he was dominant. To beat Spieth, who played an excellent tournament, by three, and it wasn't really even that close. I mean, that's, that just, that's, a, that's a level of talent that only a few guys have to really not run away with a major, but to definitively win it. I mean, look at only out of the last five years, what Oosthuizen, Rory, and Spieth have done that, if I'm thinking off the top of my head, right? Yeah, that's right, and he doesn't have any weaknesses. I mean, and he's he's just as long as Bubba and Dustin Johnson to me. I mean, those guys are known to be just prodigious, and they and they hit some extraordinary drives. But I mean, this kid, Jason Day, when he needs to move one three sixty, he can do it. If he needs to force an iron through the air two hundred and sixty yards, he can do it. And it never seemed to me like that PGA was in question, that no. the outcome was in question. And that's to take nothing away from Spieth, who's as, as game a competitor as we've got going right now. But I, I never felt like Jason Day was going to let that one slip away. And it was that was a big deal to me, Chris, because he's been close in a lot of major championships. This was the first one that I think he was really expected to win. And that's a different level of pressure that a guy's got to deal with. So I think it was a huge achievement for him. Yeah, I think he knew that also if he didn't win that one that there was going to be some major questions asked. And at that point, I think it kind of would be a little bit fair. It's like, all right, you've done this how many times now, man? Like, it's, it's, we're ready for you to close one of these and to do it in the fashion that he did. I, 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 was, I was rooting for Spieth is the thing. I wanted him to win three majors this year, but it was so hard for me because I wasn't rooting against Day. Like I wanted Spieth to go run him down, but I didn't, well, I didn't like seeing Day lay the sod over that ball on nine, and I was not rooting for him to miss putt. So it was, uh, it, but that's just kind of like where I laugh at, at the state of the current game. It's like we got these two going head-to-head in the last three majors of the year. Like how, how unbelievably – like. I, I, I don't want to say lucky we are. It's like we have this, we're just like cursed with this incredible golf week in and week out. And I mean, we're, it's a new storyline. Davis Love the Third won a tournament this week. Like, how, how does that happen? Like, only in 2015 could that happen. <laughs> you know, could you imagine if Spieth had won the PGA? Um, if he had gone three for four and the only one he didn't win was at the open, one shot out of a playoff, when he went out on Saturday in that crazy weather day uh-huh. at St. Andrews, Chris, and bogey the only hole he played before they called everybody back inside. Can you imagine what controversy would have swirled, man? Don't get me started on that. I was, I was, uh, I was I vocally upset about that, and I, I made that, that comment on Twitter and got shredded for it, mostly by, mostly by European people who were like, oh, that, that's just how we play golf over here. Like, everyone had to go out in that weather. I'm like, no, actually, not. 
not everyone did. And like the quiet thing that you know, it, you almost I, I'm hesitant to even mention on Twitter in an article because people think automatically I assume I'm blaming that event for being the only reason Speed didn't win. But he got the bad part of the draw in both the PGA and the British. I think it was uh, Jake Nichols who uh, who uh, runs a fantastic statistical analysis website who, who tweeted some statistics about. The fact that Spieth had the bad part of the draw on both tournaments, which look, it happens. He had the good side of the draw, I think, in the U.S. Open and in the uh, in the Masters. So you, it's it's fair to expect fifty fifty for throughout the majors. But I mean, that's basically kind of what prevented him from winning the Slam, and it's just it's insane to think about. I mean, it's I think it would have been a whole different pressure on him at the PGA if he'd have won the British, but um, it, to have it come down to that one shot at the British and to know that. He got that bad of a break of having to go out in that weather. It, it really, really frustrated me. And I, I floated this question, too, and it's unanswerable. It's like, would the RNA have sent them out there if it was Rory going for the slam? Is that a fair question to ask? Yeah, I guess it is. But, you know, it is sort of uh, the luck of the draw. I mean, they they want to finish on Sunday. Any any tournament host wants to finish on, on Sunday. Uh, not being there, I can't tell you the severity of the weather, only the pictures and the visuals that I saw. It didn't look good. Uh, you know, they gave it a shot, and it, it, it adversely affected some players more than others. And, you know, it's hard to project how uh, Spieth would have played at the PGA had he won the Open Championship. Right. I mean, we don't know. He may not have put himself in position to win. It could have been a different story. But uh, his overall major championship season, man, that's as good as we've seen since uh, 2000. It's not as good as Woods in 2000, but for me, it's right there. Yeah, it's really not fair to nitpick it, and we are. It's it's like when you think back to, I mean, he could have easily, you know, DJ could have easily made that putt at the U.S. Open too, and he could have only won one major this year. So I mean, it's 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 amazing how fickle things can be and how close it can come. I mean, he was he was damn close to making that putt out of the Valley of Sin on 18 at the at the Open as well. But uh, yeah. uh, along this, I was curious, to, I want to pick your brain on another guy we've been mentioning in passing so far is Dustin Johnson. And uh, at the age of 31, without a major at this point, I think uh, people are, I feel like the narrative's kind of been written on DJ. Um, but to me, this felt like his, the, his best season. And I don't have the numbers in front of me about most wins, most top tens, but I felt like he's never been a bigger threat than he is when he tees it up currently. I know he had bad weekends at the PGA and at the Open, but I I feel like, I don't have anything to back this up other than I feel like his suspension slash six-month layoff, whatever, I really do think he's kind of come back a changed man commitment-wise and mental-wise. Do you get the same sense, or am I kind of imagining some kind of storyline there? No, he seems different. He seems more committed to what he's doing out there, doesn't he, for sure. And he's, gosh, he's such a sublime talent. I mean, he's got a gear that a lot of guys don't have, and because of that, he's a threat to win not only the major championships, but pretty much every week that he tees it up. And, yeah, I I think this was his probably his best season. I think he kind of put it all together pretty quickly uh, when he came back out there on the West Coast. And... You know, he's such a it's a fascinating storyline. I can't quite put my finger on what it is uh, that's keeping him continually falling short in, in major championships. You have to believe that someone as good as he is and as talented as he is is going to win one eventually. But, you know, we've been saying that about Sergio for, for yeah. 15 years now as well, and he's 35 years of age. But um, Dustin Johnson's final round there, Chris, at Whistling Straits, epitomized yep. his major championship season. I mean, it was it was, it was was tantalizing. He was awful in that opening hole. 
and then phenomenal the rest of the day, the rest of the way. Uh, just unable to put it all together for 18 holes, and you know I don't know what the difference is, you know, other than it's just really hard to do it. Look what Jason Day has done, and he admitted it was harder of a proposition than he than he ever imagined. So. DJ just needs to push through this, and sometimes a, a major wins you before you win one, I guess. Yeah, no, I mean, it's. I think it'd be a fool's errand to really try to figure out what's going on in these guys' heads or really try to predict their futures or their career, especially, I mean, there's the thing about all the unpredictable things that happen in one round of golf, but I just... I've been I, I, the biggest takeaway I've had from the PGA has been DJ. I've just I can't I don't know what it is, what it is. I just like I can't stop thinking about it. It's like this has to he has to break through at some point. I've never been more confident when he's standing over a shot than I currently am, and the results just aren't quite matching it. I, I just feel like it really is a matter of time. I think next year finally is the year that he's going to break through and win one. But uh, um, putting a wrap on the major season for the year, we're starting the FedEx Cup playoffs this week, uh, the Barclays up in New Jersey. I'm curious as to what you think, uh, what are some changes that you'd like to see in the FedEx Cup? Because for me personally, I don't get that excited about it. I know I know what the goal is. The goal is it, it, what we have currently going is way better than what we had before. And you know it is it's it's designed you know to be at least somewhat of a rival to foot to football season starting, and I buy that totally. But I feel like it could be more. So what is your I guess ideal FedEx Cup playoffs? If you're allowed to speak on this without getting in trouble with the tour. <laughs> well, of course I am, and and yeah, the the most important part of all this is that it is uh, much better than what we had yes. prior to 2007. Um, you know, there's a faction of people who don't consider it uh, playoffs. Uh, yeah. They look at it more as a collection of four really strong events. That's fine. I mean, yep. you can you can define it any way you want, but it's a it's a much better competitive landscape than what we had seven or eight years ago. Uh, they've made some changes. I think one of the things they did this year, which will help, was you know dial back the points distribution just a little bit. Chris, it used to be 2,500 points for a victory. Uh, in the playoffs, that I think was a little too much. There was a little too much emphasis uh, on winning in the playoffs, which to me diluted the importance of being great and consistent throughout the course of the regular season. So it's 2000 this year. That's better. So you won't get quite as much volatility. You want some, you know, you want sure. that eight and eight wildcard team that sneaks into the playoffs to have a chance to run the tables, but you also want the team that goes 13 and three wins the division, gets the bye, gets the home field advantage to have a little bit of an edge starting out of the playoffs. Yep. So uh, that's what Spieth has to begin with now. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to it this week. Uh, I know there's a couple guys that aren't playing. Uh, we won't see Roy. We'll see him in Boston, but uh, the rest of the gang and all the top guys in the point standings are, Ready to fire it up this week in Plainfield. Yeah, no, I think uh, I agree with pretty much everything you said there. Um, and for, if looking backwards at the FedEx Cup champions in the past, I think every champion there's been has been deserving of it. I think it has worked out fairly well. There's not been like a, a guy where you're like, you know what, like he should not have won over this guy. This guy had such a better year and just got hot at the end of the year. Maybe you want to make the case for Bill Haas. Um, Rory in 2012, I believe, I think was probably his best chance at winning it. But something like what happened with Horschel last year, a guy goes out and finishes second, first, first in the final events of the year, that's your champion. That's your playoff champion. Like I, I'm totally fine with that working out that way. What I would like to see, and I know it will never happen because I know match play does not rate well, 
is to have the first three events of the year be a some kind of seeding positioning. Or, I'm sorry, the first three events of the FedEx Cup playoffs be a seeding positioning to get you in place for either a round of 32 or a round of 16 match play. And you run, and I know it's you don't want to go up against football. You run the final matches on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday in prime time on the West Coast. Tell me, you're not people aren't going to tune into that. <laughs> well, it's an intriguing uh, scenario for sure. But you may have answered your own question. I know, uh, and that is the the viability of match play in terms of the appetite that people have for it. I mean, hardcore golf fans like us, you know, we love it. Uh, the other risk with match play is that you get. The, some of the top level guys bounced out of there early and they may not be a factor, uh, you know, when you get late toward the end of the thing. But, you know, all of this discussion and dialogue and debate is is good. It's only going to lead to perhaps more more changes to make this a better system going forward. And, you know, it's not perfect. I don't think anyone at the PGA Tour would tell you it's perfect. Uh, I think they're always looking for feedback. I think they certainly get it from the players and they want to make this as fair and equitable uh, as they can to sort of balance the regular season and this this run of four playoff events. All right. So what what are the chances that we could get the PGA Tour would hire me as a special consultant strictly <laughs> strictly for my half baked ideas? Okay. I'm I'm, I'm not going to come up with full plans. All right. You can pay me contingently on only if you adopt my plans. But let me at least get it started, and you guys can do the rest. You guys can handle the logistics. I'll handle the easy part, coming up with the idea, and you guys figure out the rest. Who can I talk to at the PGA Tour? Well, I don't know if there's a corner office waiting for you at uh, 112 <laughs> TPC Boulevard over there at Bonavidra at, uh, at World Headquarters. But uh, here at PGA Tour Entertainment, that might not be as, as far-flung an idea as you would think. Who knows? <laughs> Well, the best I can, the best the best idea I think I've actually had is, and I'm, I don't want to take full credit for this. The rest of the guys that know Lang Up have uh, helped me with this idea as well. Is the night before the match play is having the players, and I have a whole post I can send you this. Having the players decide who plays who, based on like a drafting or pin system, right? And you televise that. You put some alcohol in front of the guys, and you televise it live on the golf channel the night before the event. Tell me that wouldn't be must-see TV. Yeah, and if it's not, by all means, add alcohol if you want. Exactly. To <laughs> it's a half-baked idea. I haven't thought of it fully all the way. You um, know, it's valuable just to have half-baked ideas, even if the people you're working for are convinced that they're not going to work. And then that's how you arrive at actual you know, ideas that will work. There you go. There you go. So I, I, what's triggering this next question is the fact that these FedEx Cup events, to me, lose a little bit of their appeal when I don't know where they're playing it year to year, right? It's kind of a it's kind of a rotational program, you know, between the BMW has been in a couple courses in Chicago, last year it was out in Denver. The the Barclays, I believe, is on a four year rotation every year. So I don't get to know these courses very well at all. It's not like a major where, you know, I spend a lot of time getting getting prepared getting prepped and, you know, getting schooled in these courses. But it does give us a fresh look at new courses on tour, which I do like that part. So are there any venues that you think that have gone away from the PGA Tour in the past? You've been, you've been around this for 20 years. Like some of your old favorite venues or favorite places to, to see tournaments that you'd like to see come back or other tournaments, or other courses where they've never hosted a tournament that you think are deserving? You know, uh, I love the small market, small community events. Um, I realize we're in an age of, of uh, big markets and uh, corporate partnerships, and that's, you know, obviously essential to the, the success and the overall health of the tour and the game. But 
to me, uh, places like Greensboro, Chris, last week, mm-hmm. Hartford, Connecticut, Hilton Head, the week after the Masters, uh, those communities are an important part of the the fabric of the PGA Tour. I used to love uh, the old Buick Open in, in Warwick Hills, Grand Blanc, Michigan, which was on the PGA Tour schedule for for many, many years, that place would go off the hook. I mean, it was a <laughs> tiny town. It was the only game in town, and yet they would jam that place with fans. And that par three was one of our live at holes, actually, for a bunch of years. I think it's 17. And Tiger played there, and they got good fields there through the years. And, you know, eventually a lot of those those courses and those events just kind of get swallowed up, like the BC Open in upstate New York where I grew up. So uh, I hope that those types of events uh, – stay on the tour calendar for many years to come. I really do. Yeah, it's really a shame kind of what the technology has done and made so many courses obsolete. I mean, I'd, I'd be interested in seeing a, a turnover statistic as to, you know, from 1995 to 2015, how many courses have been, how many, it's got to be 25% of the courses are still being played on would be my guess, right? Yeah, and, uh, you know, you can challenge these guys without, putting a 7,800-yard course in front of them. I think we're going in the wrong direction in ways that we're trying to, to, to challenge these best players in the game. You can do it with narrow fairways. You can do it with fast greens. I mean, it's it's pretty simple. I mean, there's a there's a premium on shot-making that I think gets lost, uh, not only because of the equipment that... And, and, and to me, that's a problem. Uh, I think it's becoming somewhat of a lost art. Um, certainly, you know, the, the power game that these guys played is, is something to marvel at, uh, and it's an awesome spectacle for sure, but give me a 7,100-yard course where the winning score is about 10 or 12 under par, and I'll be happy capper every week. Yeah, I mean, the, the, interesting that you bring that up as one of the last things I want to talk to you about is where do you see the future of the game going as far as technology? Because what we've seen in the last five years, I mean, I don't like how, you know, as soon as something happens, like Rory hits a 180-yard 9-iron, the first reaction is not to be in awe of it. It's, oh, look at what has happened to the game. Like, I think this is, a, this is fun. It's fun to see the guys bomb the ball. However, I think things are maybe starting to spiral a little out of control when Jason Day is hitting wedges into 570-yard par fives. What, what, what can realistically be done at this point? I feel like they're maybe about five years behind of this, this move of potentially rolling back the ball. I don't think they can go backwards with the ball, but is there anything they can do to kind of stop this technological boom that's kind of getting out of hand? We're going to see an 8,500-yard course before it's too long. Yeah, you're probably right, and I think it is the ball. I think that's been identified by, you know, even the players will tell you that that's, that's more of an issue than the equipment that they're using. It's the ball as well, but I... You know, I wonder and I have some concern about how far down the road we are already with that and, and what can be done from this point forward because it's sort of a, you know, it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy because what it's, what it's prompting is the design of bigger and bigger golf courses. So, you know, one sort of feeds into the other and, and you know, not in a positive way. So you know, I hope that there's still a collection of courses that are a little bit different and can sort of reverse the trend here um, to make it more competitively balanced, too. I mean, you know, you play certain courses, only, you know, 10, 15 guys have a legitimate chance to win. Yeah. Uh, if you dial it back and you put them on a, on a course where there's more of a premium on shot making, I think it opens up the competitive balance of the field and it allows, you know, everybody to have a reasonable chance of competing. 
Yeah, but also, you know, that you run the risk of Sean McKeel winning one of those tournaments as well. So maybe they're just going to embrace this bombing area, bombing era as long as they can. <laughs> uh, I'm going to get you out on my one final question I ask all my new guests, all the, all the new podcast guests. And I know you're familiar with the topic, so I don't need to explain it to you. What is your favorite tour sauce move? <laughs> Personally, or to witness from an actual both, tour player? Both. I want to, the one favorite one you pull on the course and to witness from a tour player. Mm, uh, I love the uh, signing of the glove when you plunk somebody in the gallery with an errant tee shot. That's <laughs> that's my favorite, uh, especially if you slip a hundo in there. But the, cam- <laughs> the cameras don't catch that. Uh my, myself personally, uh, my best tour sauce work comes on the greens. That's the best part of my game. I'm only, a, you know, a, maybe a 15 handicapper, Chris, just as you know, mm-hmm. a, an average hack. Uh, but I can putt, and if I know it's going in and it's five feet away, I'll walk in. So that's <laughs> as, that's as saucy as it gets for me. <laughs> that's what uh, the mo- maybe the most refreshing thing we saw from Tiger this week is he gave a good Tiger step on a birdie putt. It was a clean foot out. He knew it was in and gave it the step. Man, that's. That's what that was the, what triggered me to, to give the uh, give the thumbs up on him being back. <laughs> oh man, it was great to see for uh, you know for a few days anyway, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was a it was a good uh, blast from the past. But uh, all right, man, we've taken up almost fifty minutes of your time. It's been uh, very much appreciated. I've been uh, glad we could finally do this, and uh, I think we're we're safe on your employment for now. Uh, we'll we'll <laughs> hold off to see maybe by the end of the week. But uh, you're also assuming that people listen to this, these things, and they really do, they really don't. So. <laughs> That's a good point. If I get any calls from Human Resources, I'll I'll direct them your way. All right. That sounds good. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in. This was John Swantek from the PGA Tour. And, uh, John, we will definitely do it again sometime. Right on. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, man. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah! Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect anything.